Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Shadow Realm podcast here at Bamani Lounge. Thank you all so much for tuning in to a special episode. Today, I've got one of our members of Team Lionheart, who's just recently joined in the last couple of months, Jackson Knight Pierce, one of my very good friends. And uh, yeah, today we're going to bring to you a new episode of, of the Shadow Realm podcast. I know it's been a couple of months, actually, since we've given you an episode, but uh, we're trying to get back at it. We've been revamping some things at the lounge, and hopefully this will be a more regular thing moving forward. So we're going to be talking about the metagame, and we'll be talking about rogue strategy in modern Yu-Gi-Oh. So Jackson, uh, how you been doing, man? I've been all right, man. Uh, things have been absolutely crazy here in New York. I'm actually staying in Staten Island for a couple of days, watching after uh, my fan, my fiance's dog. And uh, you know, it's nice to kind of get out of the city for a little while. Just nice and relaxing. Sounds great. Uh, how's how's Yu-Gi-Oh been treating you lately? You know, Yu-Gi-Oh has been a bit of a topsy turvy mess um, <laughs> after piloting Dragon Link for so long. Uh, it's been interesting to see this new ban list uh, dropping and given Link Cross the boot, uh, same thing with Dragon Buster. You know me, I'm a Buster Blader fanatic and uh, seeing my little Welby boy go to zero brings me all sorts of joy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it, it's uh, I'm excited because this format is pretty diverse. Um, I'm excited to see like all these different decks kind of popping up, different Eldritch variants, Dogmatica. Uh, Virtual World is the deck I'm running right now, and uh, I'm very happy to have it. Uh, it's It looks fun, versatile, everything that I think Yu-Gi-Oh should be. So all in all, it's been a roller coaster, but here we are. Sounds great. Well, I guess we'll, uh, we'll pop off today's discussion by talking about the LCS. I think it's uh, number nine that just concluded yes. this past weekend. Mm -hmm. And we once again see Virtual World taking the top spot at the LCS. This time it was piloted by Luke Coogan, mm -hmm. and he played against Jesse Cotton, who was piloting Drytron. Drytron, a brand new deck out of Genesis Impact, in the finals. And wow, what a crazy match that was. Jesse Cotton, I watched him in the semifinals, I think it was, and Drytron was able to play through Gamma, uh, Ash, and two other hand traps. I, I can't even remember what else there was, but he literally played through four hand traps and he still had that game. It was absolutely absurd to watch what Drytron can push through. So we're definitely going to be discussing that new deck. Uh, Jackson, did you end up watching any of the LCS this past weekend? I did. I actually just watched the the finals today on uh, DB Grinders channel and uh, I watched um, uh, Virtual World take it. And it was absolutely insane. Like Drytron is just taking the meta by storm, especially since like it's so new, people are still trying to figure out how exactly to fight against it, how exactly to side against it. Turns out Droll and Lockbird's gonna come back a little bit to uh, help combat against that deck. Um, haven't seen that card have such an important place in the side deck since like Spiral Format. So yeah. Yep, you know when Droll and Lockbird enters the format that something is wrong. <laughs> you you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and something that's even kind of crazier is that because Drytron is filled with a bunch of level one monsters, it's actually technically possible that you could see where Arf thou seeing play to search Droll and Lockbird. Mm-hmm, exactly. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know if the meta is gonna shape up to be exactly that way, but that is something that is, that's a looming threat on the horizon. It is definitely. But uh, speaking of looming threats, 
how can we not talk about the very fun dragon, VFD, Calamities himself, <laughs> walking away from the ban list scot-free? How did this Wyrm manage to go under the radar? Oh my god. Well, I mean, first, first thought comes to mind is they gotta sell Virtual World. They gotta be able to sell this deck that can just, like, churn out level 9 monsters like it's no one's business and i mean vfd is pretty much the the sort of end goal for this deck especially turn one it's really all they kind of have going for them at the moment until someone comes up with like some other crazy stuff i mean sure you could do like phantom fortress enter blathnir uh or like Gotham's hand rip just shenanigans but vfd is the strongest one you got and that's what every single player is doing with virtual world so you take that away phantom rage is pretty much dead like sure you got div like divine arsenal and alpha for zodiac but that's it yeah phantom rage actually turned out to be quite a disappointing set if you ask me with the mm -hmm. exception obviously of uh, divine arsenal double a zoo sky thunder such an anime name. Sky Thunder. Such an anime name. <laughs> it's uh, it's incredible how that card has single-handedly put Zoo back in the metagame. Oh, I thought it was dead. Honestly, it's been long enough that I actually started missing Zoo. The only reason that I didn't like playing against Zodiac back in Zodiac format was because, you know, I couldn't afford $120 playsets of each of the Secret Rare Xyz monsters and $70 copies of uh, barrage other than that the deck was actually fairly budget um but it's really nice to see it back in the metagame especially mixing with eldlich i mean you know me i love zombies and i think the eldlich engine is just so cool how it it really exemplifies what zombies are all about they just refuse to die you can't get rid of them mm-hmm and they sort of solve a lot of the problems that Zodiac has. It plays a lot of low attack monsters. It kind of has trouble passing through more than one interruption. Like if you uh, if you interrupt the normal summon, then they kind of just crumble, but Eldritch provides it that extra layer of resiliency. And there's a lot of cool interactions like uh, Dryden popping cursed Eldland mm -hmm. and then Eldland sending one of the golden land traps and then you're able to just set a Scarlet Sanguine in your end phase. You always have access to Golden Lord, which is really, really insane. Really good. It allows basically Zoo to have more plays than just Dryden Pass. Exactly, or like Megaclops Pass. And Megaclops Pass was pretty good when people didn't know how to play around it, and also before Zeus existed. But now that Zeus exists, it's just uh, kind of a pipe dream now. Exactly, yeah. And like, and now Zeus like genuinely is like the only thing that can really deal with Megaclops because it's unaffected by monsters except for Xyz, right? Correct. And it also can't be destroyed by battle except with an Xyz monster. There you go. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a very scary card. I mean, of course, kaiju's are always a thing that exists, but true. Yeah, kaiju's aren't really being widely played right now because uh. The standard play is to shotgun uh, calamities in the standby phase, and then if your opponent has anything, anything to like pop it or negate it, then you just pop it with your chuche, and then it resolves anyway. So yep. kaijus aren't really going to be super popular, I feel, in the coming format. 
No, no, I agree. Not not in this coming format. Like, they're always going to be in the back of our minds and sort of a sleeper. Like, whenever you think of uh, non-targeting removal, first thing anyone will think of is a kaiju. So it'll definitely stay in our minds, but not very popular right now. Yeah, so that sort of wraps up most of the meta decks of the format. I've, have I missed anything? Uh, I mean, you got Dogmatica, which is still, like, kind of seeing itself splashed in a number of decks. I mean, for me personally, the... Uh, one Dogmatica variant that I have seen kind of fall out a little bit is Buster Blader, unfortunately, which ironically did not run the Buster Dragon that got banned, which is great. But um, wow, that is uh, that is hilarious, actually. Yeah, it's like it's weird because it didn't need it because everything else is just negating and turning everything into dragons. Like, yeah, fair enough. The Dogmatica engine is definitely one that I would love to get my hands on if I had the cash. It's such a strong engine, and I love the way that it plays, turning the extra deck into a resource in a way that pretty much no other deck ever has. Yeah. Usually decks that lock you out of the extra deck have been something like Monarchs, where you have to commit tribute summons, and you also can't play an extra deck, period. But Dogmatica just locks you out of summoning from the extra deck while using extra deck monsters as a resource. Mm-hmm. Sending cards like Elder Entity or like Cypher and Lord Omega, Fossil Warrior, Skull Knight. There's a lot of really cool interactions that Cyber- come up. Even Cyber Dragon Nova to bring out Mechaba. Yeah, it, it it's crazy how Dogmatica Maximus specifically necessitates a certain amount of counterplay depending on the kind of deck that you're playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if your deck can fit nova and mechaba into the extra deck then you kind of just have to put them in there because if your opponent uses maximus they're going to get a lot of value off of that and if you're not able to catch up then you're kind of cooked yep exactly but um i guess that kind of segues us into the next section of this podcast and that's us we're going to be talking about how we deal with being rogue players how we deal with the meta Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jackson, I'm, I'm really interested. What deck are you going to be playing since your uh, your favorite Welpy boy has just gotten banned? Well, like I said uh, at the beginning, I'm, I'm maining Virtual World right now because it's one of the only completed decks I still have. Um, and it's uh, it's very powerful. And, I mean, the only things I don't have from that deck are Triple Tactics Talon because I don't have, like, 300 bucks to spend on a playset. Uh, things like that are Forbidden Droplet. So I'm... I'm substituting those with like uh, two ghost ogres and a call by the grave or, or something like that but in terms of rogue strategy that one's still kind of up in the air because i i still have dragon link like it's still put together i just need to deck up the link cross and the buster whelp and that's basically it um so i gotta find a bit of a new strategy i think i'm i'm thinking i'm gonna stick with dragon link make it a little more rocket centric and uh really focus on uh, uh, utilizing those tools to bring out some form of interruption. Probably going to add Dragoon into the mix because, uh, I mean, anything in their mother can make Dragoon now uh, if they, as long as they can make Verta Anaconda. So I'm thinking with most rogue strategies, that's kind of how they're going. They're uh, focusing on a very specific engine that can get you to Dragoon. So I think for Dragon Link, that's where I'm going to go. Yeah, that uh, that definitely makes sense. 
Dragoon has seen a big resurgence in popularity, uh, gauging by the results of the LCS this past weekend. I think, uh, I don't know the exact number, but in the top 16, I saw a lot of deck lists playing the Dragoon package. Yep. And this kind of falls in line with what we expected. Even though there are outs like Triple Tactics Talent and Forbidden Droplet, Dragoon is just such a powerhouse of a boss monster that now that we have the pseudo FTK of Smoke Grenade of the Thief out of the format, and now that we have the Buster Lock out of the format, and degenerate combos enabled by Link Cross out of the format, exactly. Dragoon definitely seems like it's finally gonna start seeing the, the amount of play that maybe we expected when it was first released. And we were all surprised when it basically made no impact on the meta whatsoever. It really didn't do much. And like, and I think Dragon like it can really thrive a little more because, and I think I was telling you about this before we started uh, recording the podcast. Um, I was telling you about this Dragon Link deck that I found online and they were using Black Metal Dragon to get Red Eyes Black Dragon from the deck into the hand so I don't draw it later. It basically takes the brick and like deliberately puts it in my hand so I don't draw into it at a later date. I'm like, okay, that's a little spicy. I kind of like that. Like, it, it, <laughs> it works with itself. It's always spicy to search Red Eyes Black Dragon. That is the most broken search. Search the vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> the only combo that's more broken is Silver Fang Regeki. Am I right? Dude, how do you stop that? It's an FTK. I, 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 see, I see Silver Fang come out. I already start sweating bullets. As you should. Yeah. It's an unbeatable combo. It really is. <laughs> but but uh, yeah. as for me, I'm also on Virtual World as probably my main deck this format because it is uh, dirt cheap, even after the Lulus went to $20 a copy. Yeah. The whole deck is basically still under $60, $70. And um, when I'm not playing Virtual World, of course, I'm always going to be in the lab figuring out how to adapt Subterra for the format. Oh, Guru. I think that it actually does have a pretty decent spot in this metagame right now because the, one of the biggest issues was getting hand-looped by Smoke Grenade and Triple Tactics Talent. Mm -hmm. But it seems like hand traps are actually not going to be so severely punished and you're not going to get FTK'd. So I, th I think that control decks have a real spot in this metagame we saw in the top 16 of the LCS, there were a lot of decks that were on the Eldritch package, and that is probably the best control engine in the game right now. Oh, without question, yeah. So, as a rogue player, what is it that you try to do to combat the meta? What do you look for in a rogue deck, and how do you go about building your strategy for the current meta? Well, of course, when looking at like rogue decks, uh unlike meta decks when it comes to selection uh there's a lot more personality put into the the rogue pick it's it's got to be like a strategy or like an archetype or something that you like so i know like you for instance zach you're a big control guy you were uh you love your zombies they're very control based you control the game state and that kind of extended further and further into your choice of uh sub terrors uh me i love dragons specifically so i was able to find a deck that was inexpensive uh, I already had a lot of the cards for it and was able to put it together. And I love aggro. I love the aggro style. And so having 
those two things put together that I had access to, I was like, okay, there we go. There's there's my choice. And of course, it, uh, when it comes to finding out the outs to things, you got to do your research. You got to keep watching duels. You got to um, look at what, what cards are the most influential in the meta right now. Obviously, right now we got VFD. We have Dragoon now is coming back in and a number of other issues. Uh, and we just have to analyze what they're playing, what the, the other meta decks are playing and see what the kind of equivalent is in Rogue. And I mean, this goes without saying, but it, it, it's kind of a give or take, especially if you're running on a budget. Um, you gotta be able to either shell out for the big for the big cards or find like the next best thing. That's why I'm saying like for tactics talent, I'm using Ghost Ogre and Call by the Grave. It's, it's, it's a give and take. Like, sure, I'm not gonna spend a bunch of money. I'm not gonna drop a lot of money on that, but I'm not gonna have as good a card. So you gotta kind of have that idea in your mind. It's like, if you're playing Rogue and you're not gonna be playing those big cards, you are setting yourself a little lower. Like that from from just a mindset going into the game, you gotta understand that. And I think the more, the quicker you understand that, the more you're gonna be able to accept when things don't exactly go your way with a Rogue deck, against the meta deck at least. Yeah, I mean, rogue decks are definitely rogue for a reason. If they were the best deck, then they would be the best deck and everybody would be playing them and it would be considered meta. When you're choosing to play rogue, you are specifically putting yourself at a certain type of handicap because by its very nature, a rogue deck is not going to be popular, not going to be widely played. And so that gives you certain disadvantages because the best decks are usually pretty quickly figured out. Exactly and they do things more unfairly and more consistently than your rogue deck can. So when you're playing a rogue deck, it's uh, it's interesting. You bring up a really good point of you got to pick something that you like to play, mm-hmm. something that brings you a lot of enjoyment and that you'll continue to understand deeper. And one of the advantages of playing rogue is that people don't necessarily always know what your cards do. Exactly. And it doesn't mean that you're necessarily banking on your opponents always misplaying against you, but you have to take it into consideration that your opponents will not always know how to beat your deck and how to stop you. So you need to capitalize on that as the rogue player by knowing your deck so intimately that you know every single interaction. And then of course, being a rogue player, you have kind of uh, an amount of foresight playing against a meta player because if you do your research, as you said, Jackson, then you'll know what the best plays for that deck are and how to beat it. So then your job becomes, how does my deck, the deck that I enjoy playing and I know very intimately, how does that deck take advantage and exploit the weaknesses of the top meta strategies? Mm-hmm. For, an, for a great example, I always come back to Subterror and the choice of Floodgates. In some formats, it's correct to play Gozen Match because every deck will be playing multiple attributes and it just represents a big choke point. But for the past year or so, There Can Be Only One has been the floodgate of choice because every deck is pretty much monotyping. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, Infernobles in the past format being pretty much all warriors. You have Dragon Link being all dragons. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's a way that you can really take advantage of a certain like Achilles heel to the top meta strategies. Mm-hmm. But right now we're seeing virtual world being extremely popular and 
I gotta say, they really don't care about There Can Be Only One because half the deck is Psychic, half the deck is Worm, and then the Synchro monsters that they can go into, like um, Vermilion Dragon Mech, even though it says dragon in the name, it's actually a machine, and Coral Dragon is a dragon. So those are cards that can just out that there can be only one and then they just continue on with their merry way. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's definitely an important thing to me is figuring out what is the Achilles heel of the meta decks and can I play a deck that I enjoy that takes advantage and capitalizes on those weaknesses. Exactly. Uh, In one uh, one example I remember specifically, I believe it was at uh, uh, Xeno Zero Games in uh, downtown in Manhattan. And this is during, I think, uh, Orcus format, like the uh, Eternal format. And I was playing a weird version of like, God, I love that format. Uh, I was playing a weird version of like Dragon Link, but <clears throat> using uh, the Buster Blader engine as well. So I was playing like Buster Whelp, three prologue, and I was facing off against the guy who was playing Sky Striker. And uh, oh my God, he <laughs> he was blown away when I like got what was it? I think I had like uh, uh, Saryuja twice. Uh, I ended up on God. What was it? I can't remember exactly my board, but I did end up on the Buster Lock. I got the Fusion, the Synchro, and Buster uh, Dragon Buster, the now banned one, uh, all out in the field. And this guy had no idea what to do because he could not go into his um, Sky Striker Ace monsters. Couldn't go into the extra deck. And uh, anything you tried to activate on the field, turn to defense, effects negated. That's all he could do. Unfortunately, he also had Mystic Mind in his hand, so we just slapped that down and I couldn't do anything. <laughs> of course. Yep. The very fair card, Mystic Mind. I gotta say, I, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with that card because I love seeing players get punished when they don't respect it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it is an oppressive floodgate and there's only so oppressive a floodgate can be before I think it's like maybe a little bit too unhealthy for the game. Exactly. And I'm and I'm in the same boat as you. It's like I, I do respect it and I do understand that it is a card that exists and I need to be ready for it. But also why? <laughs> Just why? <laughs> Honami, explain to us what why? the heck you were thinking when you designed Mystic Mine. I want an answer on my desk by Monday. Well, you know, I think uh, they just wanted to appease to the true gem of Yu-Gi-Oh, Jeff Leonard. (laughs) I gotta say, he's kind of like the people's hero. He is the people's hero. He is the dad that we all needed. It's really great to see an older demographic playing Yu-Gi-Oh and having some form of competitive success. I mean, he's, he's definitely topped a few regionals before COVID hit. Yep. Honestly, he's the only Mystic Mind burn player that I want to face, that I actually I actively look forward to facing one day. Yeah, he, he does have such a great positive attitude, and the fact that he plays with his son, and that's a way for him to connect oh. with his son, that's just such a great, that's a warm, happy feeling inside, isn't it? That is Great British Bake Off levels of, like, hominess. <laughs> Well, I guess uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to the final segment of our podcast today. And for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we typically end our segments with a section from Patrick Hoban's book, Road of the King. Patrick Hoban being one of the most successful Yu-Gi-Oh players in all of Yu-Gi-Oh's history. And there's an entire book about it. If you don't know the book, then you should definitely go check it out. 
it's kind of difficult to come by, but you should be able to find it on Amazon or maybe thriftbooks.com. Something like that. And then, hey, but the uh, yeah, he, he has very interesting takes and very important lessons that he's learned throughout his success over the years. And I think today we're gonna we're gonna hit on power and consistency because that's one of the things that makes a meta deck a meta deck versus a rogue deck being rogue. A lot of times a rogue deck will lack in one of these capacities. It'll either be very powerful, but also very fragile and not consistent, or it will be amazingly consistent, but kind of lack the power ceiling. Like we we see that, for example, Salamangrate is Mm. pretty much fallen off the map in terms of competitive play, but it is still one of the most consistent decks of all time. Oh yeah, even with all the, of its like the deck just always is playing the game no matter what. Yeah, even with all of its limitations, it's still like absolutely like consistent as can be. And now people are trying to find like OTKs with it and like still trying to keep it alive. Okay, so we have a section titled "The Trade-Off of Power and Consistency." I really hope you guys can't hear that ambulance in the background. But uh, Patrick Hoban writes. We can give ourselves more and better options by maximizing power and consistency. The underlying problem is that there is often a trade-off between power and consistency. And then he shows us a graph that shows one side being inconsistent to consistent, and then the other axis being a small deck to a big deck, a big deck being the one with the higher ceiling and more power. Consider the cards Charge of the Light Brigade and Judgment Dragon. Judgment Dragon has a very powerful effect that, when resolved, will probably have a significant impact on the outcome of the game. This powerful effect comes at a higher consistency cost. The cost of activating Judgment Dragon's effect is twofold, meeting its summon requirement and meeting its activation requirement. Both of these things must occur to resolve its effect. Summoning Judgment Dragon requires having four different Lightsworn engraved and activating its effect requires paying a thousand life points. Having four Lightsworn in Grave is a cost that requires resources not printed on the card to actualize in the form of number of turns required to set up. In this case, the increased power comes at a trade-off of decreased consistency. And I think I can I can stop reading there because that's a that's an example from obviously older old school Yu-Gi-Oh back in you know uh, 2011 to 2014. Tell the dad. But the uh, the example even though it's maybe an outdated example, it still rings true today. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you have to make deck building decisions, and this especially comes when you're playing rogue decks. You have to consider, do I play blowout cards, but at the risk of decreasing the consistency of an already inconsistent deck, mm-hmm. or do I put in more consistency cards that will be easier to use most of the time, but may not always win me the game? And that's that's kind of like the eternal conundrum of yeah. of this game, and that's that's one of the things I love about it is if the answers were always so cut and dry, then everybody would be playing the exact same forty card list. Exactly. But there are a lot of different ways to play. There's a lot of there's a lot of random chance that comes into the game, and understanding probability does not necessarily always mean that probability will work in your favor all that means is that you are increasing your chances of performing better if you understand probability yep lord knows that probability like math is 
of course we we understand math there is an absolute absolute science to it math and science uh but at the end of the day this is still a randomly generated card game you may have like the most consistent build that like anyone has ever seen you can still draw both dark magician red eyes black dragon red eyes fusion um nibiru and ash and then have nothing else <laughs> like i think it was a top eight or top 16 match this past weekend but i saw one of the most unfortunate hands i have ever seen in my life this guy opens up with two copies in a 60 card deck mind you he opens up two copies of scarlet sanguine red eyes fusion and red eyes insight and oh. then i can't remember what his fifth card was but it was definitely redundant and then for turn he draws uh, the Red Eyes Wyvern that he would normally be sending with Insight. And this is in a 60 card deck. Oh, How is... does this happen? RNG, my guy, that's Yu-Gi-Oh. That is painful. Oh my God. But you know, it just goes to show that no matter how much thought process goes into building your deck and how much, you know, you may split hairs over playing one card over another card, playing 40 versus 41. Sometimes it really just be like that it just be like that and like i i am certainly no stranger to that i have had so many bum hands even though i've i may have built my deck to the almost the exact specs of of uh, the lcs winner and i could still draw all the bricks and it, i think as long as we understand that that is still a possibility we can respect that and uh deck build accordingly and i guess that brings up something else as a sort of tangent playing through your brick hands or like learning how to still play the game or play through a brick hand or unbrick your hand is definitely a huge skill in Yu-Gi-Oh. Absolutely. Yep, it is it is something that is invaluable. Shut up, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they, working through those bricks is definitely invaluable when it comes to this game. It is like one of the most important skills I think you'll ever learn in Yu-Gi-Oh in my opinion besides reading your opponent like being able to work through a bad hand is it's universal like no matter what deck yep and uh with that guys I think we're gonna go ahead and close out this episode of the Shadow Realm I'm really really happy to be back in the driver's seat making this content for you again uh, we'll, we'll of course have Henry back on in future episodes, but, uh, expect to see a lot more of Jackson as well. And thanks so much again, guys, for tuning in and may you never draw three copies of Thunder Dragon or like me playing goat format, three copies of Pyramid Turtle. Oh God, have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Have fun, duelists. And we will see you next time on the Shadow Realm podcast. This is your host, Zach Alder signing off and... Stay well, friends. Catch you later.